0: Hi all thanks so much for joining us on Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta, and today we are welcomed by Tom Dahlborg, who is the president and CEO of Dahlborg Health Caring Leadership Group. Thanks so much for being here, Tom.
1: Oh, it's it's an honor. I appreciate the opportunity to share with you and Apoorv and all your audience.
0: On LinkedIn, you have an incredible reputation for compassion and your intense commitment to that. So why don't you start by telling us where did that form? Because you said you've been working in healthcare for 40 years. So what keeps you going and where did this all come from?
1: When I think about what drives me to want to do and help in this way, there's a number of different reasons. Some of it goes back to, you know, when I was a housekeeper at a small community hospital just south of Boston. And, uh, 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 you know, I I would be cleaning rooms and I would have these opportunities to talk with patients, and I learned early on that as a housekeeper, I was as much as the care of the care team as anyone else. When we think about in- infection control, it's like that was my job, that was my focus, that was my passion. I learned that because I was surrounded by peers that understood that, and we were treated with respect and dignity. And when I was a, I was also a transport aide. And when an elderly woman asked me to stay with her because she was scared and she held my hand so tight and I got to kneel next to her as she went through her procedure, it it was just incredibly powerful and eye-opening for me as to how each of us, all of us have this opportunity to love and share compassion and empathy and connect and bring humanity into healthcare. And then another driver was back in 2001, I got sick myself. And I was told I would never work again. I was told, get in line for a heart transplant. And I remember one of the early nights, it might have been the first night I was in the hospital. My bride had to leave me because she needed to go take care of our young children. And it was dark in the room and and I was so down and I was afraid and uh, I was thinking about everything. You know, am I ever going to leave the hospital? Uh, You know, Who's going to take care of my children? Am I ever going to see them again? Am I going to see my bride again? And I remember there was a nurse, Nurse Linda, and she came into my room in the middle of the night, about 2, 3 a.m., pitch black. And she sits at the edge of my bed and she holds my hand and she leans into me and she's looking me directly in the eyes. And she's saying four magic words, four words of compassion, four words from the heart. Tom, I've got you. And Stephanie was exactly what I needed to hear that I was going to be kept safe at that moment so that I could get to the next moment. And then I could get through the rest of the night and then I could see my bride again. And then we could go on from there on our, on our healing journey. And, and so, and then from there throughout my career, I've had lots of different roles cause I've been in healthcare forever. Um, I've just seen when we marry, evidence and science and we marry the technology and we use that appropriately and we marry all those things to love and compassion and human connection and true caring that's when the magic happens that's when the special happens and and i say magic but the reality is more and more the research is showing when we do that We create better opportunities to achieve the quintuple aim. We create better opportunities for people to have an optimal healing experience, or if they're on their dying journey, an optimal dying experience that aligns with their preferences and their cultures and and all those things. So I would say those are a number of drivers that keep me in the game.
0: I loved whenever you were talking about helping that lady and being there for her cancer treatments, you didn't say, I had to be, or I spent time. You actually said, I got to be, which is something because it shows like the fundamental compassion in you. And then it's funny that whenever you said you were going through treatment, that nurse sat on your bed and said, I've got you. So it's still got, but it was like, got in the most positive way for the provider, which is really you know fascinating and touching.
1: It's so interesting because we hear, how, or how often do we hear moral injury? When we think about the healthcare system today, And our physicians, more than one physician committing suicide per day in America, when we think about the nurses that are burning out and everyone who's who's challenged in that way throughout the healthcare system, and then we think about these opportunities to love and these opportunities to connect, that's how we get past moral injury. When we create the systems, when we recreate the systems that allow us to love again and care again and help others, that's how we get past
2: that. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's awesome. I'm I'm so glad, uh, Stephanie, you jumped in with that because, you know, it, it's it's that's the critical piece. You know, the compassion is the I think the idea to be able to hear, listen, receive, share, right? That's really where compassion comes in, and, and even in this, in in the course of a conversation. I mean, I think that you know we can feel when compassion is present and when it isn't. So I, I love that exchange. Thank you uh, for, to both for that. And I guess I'll just say before I kick off my first question, uh, I want to say on a personal note how grateful I am for Tom to be here. Uh, he's been really an incredible friend to me, uh, and all, all virtual, you know, we've never met in person, but it's incredible, you know, people people sometimes put down the power of technology. It's kind of like much like you and you and I, Stephanie, we've never met in person. Many of our viewers may be surprised to know that, but we've got a great relationship and a great partnership and a really successful show. And Tom and I are, you know, another kind of amazing example of the power of love that can come together even, you know, just through virtual media. Um, so he's been a friend to me. He's been a mentor to me. He's really pulled me into his uh, community into his family I'm, I'm excited that I'm going to be able to get to get to meet them uh, you know soon uh, so it's very personal to me Tom that you're here uh, and I really appreciate your your guidance and, and and bringing me along this journey of love and compassion uh, thank you for that uh, and and I guess on, on the note of you know where where my question would turn to after hearing your your intro and Stephanie's question is why do we think that um, that love and compassion isn't present in healthcare. You know, what, what, is, what is the barrier and what is it you're thinking of that's gonna allow that, uh, you know, to, to, be, to start flowing you know, again? Do you have a take on that?
1: It, it's a great question and I do, and I do. Early on in healthcare, we had what people call a provider-centered care model. So it was built around our providers. And because our providers are providing such amazing services, such important services, that pendulum has been swinging toward a patient-centered care model, where now it's about the patient and the family, and that's incredibly important too. But it doesn't negate the importance of ensuring that our providers have the best systems in place, the best technologies, the best evidence that allows them to continue to honor their callings, as, as Quinn Stude would say to continue to bring their heart forward, married with the science to care for patients. So we really need to think about how do we now bridge the gap that has been created here, where the pendulum has swung from one side to the other. One of the models that is, is that I was blessed to uh, be part of the group called the Hygieia Foundation, a nonprofit research institute, multi-specialty group practice and innovation laboratory that was recognized by ACP internists and, and and others for our innovations. And we used relationship-centered care which is now honoring all those relationships, the full paradigm that we're talking about here to ensure that everyone is whole and healthy and we're positioning others to be whole and healthy throughout the system, not just patients and families, not just providers, but the entirety of that model. Now, what I've seen more recently, and this happens with a lot of innovations in healthcare, is we take something that's brilliant, that's heart-centered, that's mind-centered, that brings it all together, and then within our the challenges of our lives, the challenges of the complexity of healthcare, the challenges of the, our limited capacity, the challenges of uh, our still a production-based model to a large extent, we create a bumper sticker out of Patient family centered care, patient-centered care, and we forget the hot behind it. We forget the morality behind it. Don Burwick talks more and more about the moral, um, the, the moral challenges and the need to bring morality back into healthcare. We forget that as we use a bumper sticker and a slogan and go back to our regular regular ways of being. So almost Relations- like putting
0: spanks on for healthcare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're just covering it up, sucking it in, and making it look good, right?
1: <laughs> oh, my gosh. I was in an airport not too, too long ago, and I had just done, uh, for Mental Health News Radio, I had just done a piece, and I was talking to the the, the the host afterwards, and she referenced, oh, does that airport have the Spanx store? I had no idea what spanks were, so I got educated on Spanx, so thank you for, for that memory. Yeah. Um, relationship center care Like many other things Unfortunately has now turned into In many cases, not and all Transactional relationship center care We have a relationship To complete a transaction Period because I'm busy And I need to get everything done I need to see, I'm not saying it's not coming from a great place I have 30 more patients I need to see them all So I need to go from one transaction to another transaction To see them all We have a huge opportunity before us to fix the system transform the system and create a system where those relationships are truly loving relationships again that marry the heart and mind and and we're we're missing out and you know a part of you and i've talked about this a great deal you know patients uh, experience hasn't improved through 20 since 2016 and is actually worsening patient safety Uh, since uh, crossing the quality chasm hasn't improved dramatically or significantly in what, 20 plus years. Um, I just uh, listened to that piece from uh, uh, Peter Pronovost on on about the waste in healthcare, $1.4 trillion, 30% of what we do is needless. Add that to the fact that 90% of what we do in healthcare does not have high quality evidence supporting it. We have huge opportunities. And what I've said often and and, and working with you and Pate or Denise Weisman and so many others is when we truly love, we don't allow those things to happen. And when we love somebody and we love from that play, that agape love, that we truly love them, not because we want something from them, but because we truly do love them. We ensure we're climbing every mountain. We're breaking every barrier. We ensure it is based on the highest quality evidence. We ensure that regardless of the financial model, we're doing what's best for that patient. That's the opportunity we have before us. And that's why I get so passionate about it, because I've seen the brokenness and how it can harm the, the providers. the nurse. I'm married to an incredible nurse. I've seen the harm that can happen to our nursing teams. I've seen the harm that can happen to physicians. i, I also seen the harm that happens to patients and families and communities. We also have flames of goodness throughout the system, and we need to fan those flames before they burn out. And as we know, they're burning out right now. And it takes people, adaptive leaders, people like you, people like you, Stephanie, people like many have mentioned already to come together and really say, enough is enough, never again, and let's fix this.
0: As you were talking, you started mentioning all the stats about, you know, 90% of the things being what did you say healthcare 90% of the things that you're doing in healthcare don't work or the waste all the different things and i thought to myself okay how do we focus on the heart but also focus on these outcomes because ultimately like okay maybe it's going to be like cancer care with misery but they're going to get the the evidence but then as you started talking you kind of answered that question and said when you start to put the heart into these things Then those other things kind of take care of themselves because you're really doing it from this place of like, I want to help this person. I want to see this through. So I thought that was a lovely transition that you made. And then I'm going to go to something that was related to what you were just saying and something that you said in the pre-interview that struck me, because lots of people say we need to put the humanity into healthcare, but you said something slightly different that triggered me. You said we need to put the humanity back into healthcare, which begs the question, when did it come out or was it ever there?
1: And, and as we talked about earlier, uh, it's a great question. It depends on the person and it depends on their perspective. So I've talked to physicians that have said to me, Uh, especially gerontologists that have said to be 1965. When Medicare came into play, you know, this great positive upside, great positive impacts, and there was now a financial mechanism attached to caring for the elderly when before it was, we did it because we loved them. We did it because we truly cared about our community and we cared about about our elders, and we were going to ensure that they were cared for the best way possible. Other people argue with the other side of that. We talked about uh, the provider-centered care and then the patient-centered care. Throughout that, we've had uh, a production-based model, especially when managed care came into place. Managed care was supposed to do beautiful, wonderful things. I've worked in managed care. I've worked for great programs through Harvard and others uh, in the managed care space. It became about volume-based discounts. It became about financial mechanisms. And I was Again, I've been around a long time. I was a CFO for a system. And so I get to see the financial aspects of it as well. And so as we think about how managed care came into place, production came into place, uh, how we went from seeing eight patients a day to 30 patients a day and being triple booked every 15 minutes, uh, you know, it, it's now about, whether we like it or not, it's about get through the day, survive through the day, help as many people as we can in a very challenging system. And again, there's just such huge opportunity to take a step back and take a breath and go, this is wrong, this is wrong. I mean, the Peter Protobos, I'm not sure if you saw my comment, uh, of, uh that, 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 that um, podcast they did, I uh, got value-based care and, and love, awesome. And they were talking about, again, those stats I mentioned earlier, Stephanie, and then they were talking about improving access to that care. We're now talking about improving access to a care system where 90% does not have high quality evidence supporting it. We need a, that, 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 again, understand that that's a complex adaptive system. We need that understanding of complexity, just like to, you were saying about, well, how do you bring heart in if you don't have the right evidence? And we need it all. We need it all. And we need physicians, I'll give you an example. We need physicians to understand the evidence. Some years ago, when I was working for the research institute, we developed a model where our physicians, all our clinicians, saw the evidence, discussed the evidence. It was like an Eastern-based philosophy around evidence. Let's discuss it, let's tease it out, let's see what works, let's see what aligns with population health and what aligns with individualized patient care, because we need both. And let's see how we can play within that. Understanding research is typically based on the average male. So t- cuts off the female in, all, in, its enti- in, in her entirety, and there's no such thing as an average male. So even with the best of the best evidence, we still have to be very clear. How does that apply to my patient? How does that apply to this patient? How
2: can I best understand them? And there's just so many different aspects to that. Yeah, Tom, you you covered so many different themes there, and you know they're all so critical. I think one of them that I'll pick up on that you're talking about, and in, in, in Peter Pronovost in his podcast talked about it, uh, value-based care transition— Uh, you're tying, you know, the the opportunity also to the payment mechanism and signaling that potentially, at least according to some ways of thinking, as the payment mechanisms came into place in 1965 and evolved over time, they created a more mechanistic transactional form of care, which is sort of what's created part of our challenge. I guess the the question that I have to you is, as we transition from that to value-based care, do you seeing any greater hope? And potentially, can you tie in, you know, this concept that you and I have been talking about called values-based care, which is that as you move to value-based care, you really have to bring in more of some of these values that we're talking about. Um, So what do you see as the real link between finances and the ability to deliver? And I know you have a very complex view on this, so I'd love our audience to get a take on. What is that link between between the finances and the, and, the, and the caring that's being delivered, and and specifically if you can comment on value-based care and values-based care.
1: Absolutely. So again, I've been around a long, long time. I was part of developing pay for performance programs before they called that, when they were basically, basically called quality-based incentive programs, way back with Harvard, uh, and then years later with our military program. And I've seen the benefits and I've seen the adverse impact. And I know a part of you know I quote, uh, a lot of studies that show that when we start to incentivize doing the right thing in healthcare, and, and this leads back to your your question, Stephanie, as well. When we start to incentivize doing the right things in healthcare, we actually do great harm. What we're doing is we're now where somebody came into healthcare because I want to. Most of the people I know in healthcare are certainties. They want to make a difference. They want to help people. Now we say to them, well, we're going to pay you more to do this. And now it becomes this uh, uh, extrinsic motivation to do the right thing, as opposed to that intrinsic, I love and I care, and I want to help others. And so the research shows that by bringing in these rewards, pay for performance, value-based care, those types of things, where we're saying we're going to finance this to be done. We're now creating a model that does not lead to lasting commitment, no lasting positive impact and starts to require additional financing for people to do the right thing. It's not the people's fault. It's the system's fault. It's the leadership challenge there that's creating that. And so now, a purpose you and I have talked about when we think about values-based care, now we're talking about, uh, actually, let me take one more tangent. Some years ago, I was talking to this amazing doctor, head of a quality organization in Maine. And we were talking about this new initiative, and I believe it was in the substance use disorder space. And she said to me, she says, yes, when the financials catch up, we'll implement that. The evidence was there, showed it was the right thing to do, showed it would have great impact financially and other ways. We think about the quintuplem across the board. But because the short term financial model hadn't caught up yet, we were going to allow patients not to receive the best care possible because of the financial mechanisms attached to it and that's the whole point When we get to a place of values based care as soon as we know that the evidence supports the right thing to do and leads to the best outcomes and then we can like i said tease it out and to individualize it for the patient we're going to do it regardless we're going to do it regardless and then we'll figure out the financials like i said, I built those models those models people think they're sexy and hot no they're not they're quite easy It's really about ensuring that we have the right evidence. We don't, in many cases, and the right people at the table to deliver the best care. And so when we start to, that pendulum swing from value-based care to values-based care, then we'll figure out the right path to provide the best care that leads to the best outcome, regardless of the incentives. And then we'll fix the financials on the back end, if necessary.
2: As you speak with uh, leaders around the country, uh, I think you have a very clear Ideas about how you can get them involved, you know, sort of like what's their call to action, so to speak? Uh, How should a leader of a healthcare organization be thinking? About yeah, how what is it that they can do? You know, given that they're operating in this complex healthcare environment and still struggling with how to put together these incentive programs as faulty as they are, they still have to try to get them to work because that's the way their, their you know, care will be compensated. Uh, what, do you, what do you recommend that the average healthcare leader should do in terms of thinking about what their role is in creating this health caring system? <coughs> uh, not too, too long ago,
1: Authority Magazine asked me, what's the most important thing for a leader? What's the most important thing you wish you knew as a leader? And, and my, part of my response was, well, the most important tool is to have a mirror. And, and that mirror, so that we can look in the mirror, number one, really see who we truly are. And really identify who is that true loving self. And have I lost that person? And if I have that lost that person, get help. Find the right pathway to help, to, to get the help you need. Also see that those opportunities. See the opportunity. I have this opportunity to improve on X, Y, or Z. Find that opportunity, but still love oneself just as we are, because we're, we're created and, and we're each individualized, wonderful people that can do wonderful things. And we need to embrace our own inner beauty both the, the opportunities and the flames of goodness within us. And then we need to now, once we understand that, start to carry that forth. I think what has happened, and I, when I talk to a lot of leaders is, Tom, they'll say, Tom, I wanna do that. I wanna do that, I don't know how. Or I've been so beaten down by the system, I've lost my purpose, I've lost my why, I've lost my ability, I, I've built a wall around my heart. We need to break down those walls. And it starts with the individual at those leadership levels to really look in the mirror and see what is that wall that's preventing us from engaging that heart. Because as we know, and as we've talked about, when we truly love, we'll ensure that everyone gets the best care, has the best system, and leads to the best outcomes.
0: It's funny because I'm not really a particularly visual person, but so many times in this interview, I've had like the Spanx and the, the other things. You know, when you were talking just now, I kept thinking of. Uh, um, you know, uh, like a heart transplant, like a heart in a cooler, like we need that back. Like we physically need to be like, you've lost this and we're going to fix this. Here we go. Here's your, here's your heart back. You know, it's, but it, it, we have to find a way to get it back in there. And I love the way you're thinking about it. So thank you so much for being here and sharing your, your input.
1: Oh, I appreciate the opportunity. I always love connecting with uh, Perv and now to meet you, Stephanie, uh, and, and to share. And, and again, throughout the healthcare system, there is hot. There's wonderful people those huts. We be people to re-engage those huts. We can't say a nurse in a med search for an afternoon shift uh, with a nursing patient ratio of one nurse to nine patients is good enough. No, it's not. And that's not loving. And so we need to fix the systems, and Aparv uh, and I talk about this a lot, which allows our nurses to re-engage their hearts. Because when they can't even go to the bathroom or have lunch, it's really hard to do that. And again, that's on leadership.
0: Thank you so much. This was a fabulous conversation.
1: Uh, thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Perv.
2: Loved it, Tom. Thank you again, again for your friendship and for your leadership and uh, everything you're doing to inspire all of us. I loved Stephanie's analogy there of, uh, you know, the heart transplant must be very personal for you as well there, Tom. But, uh, you know, that's, that's you know, bringing the heart back into healthcare, you know, I think is such a critical piece of what you're talking about. So I uh, really appreciate the visual imagery that uh, Stephanie's adding to that.
0: And thank Out you all sure. for watching. We'll talk to you soon. Thank oh. you.